Well, we humans are pretty helpless people, aren't we? We don't really like to acknowledge that truth, but the reality is we all need help in some way or other. It starts when we are born, when we need help for everything and anything in life. But then as we get a little bit older and we start to mature, our need for help begins to dwindle, or at least that's what we would like to say. But we still need some help. The issue then becomes how much help we actually need. For example, take the junior high or high school boy who really in anything in all of life doesn't need help, right? They don't need help at all except for when it comes to that one subject in school that they don't really mind helping that one female classmate uh, to help them a little bit in that. Now, again, I'm not speaking from experience at all. I'm sure that happened to other guys. He probably doesn't need all that much help, but he wants it, and so he asks for it. My kids remind me almost daily, probably some days hourly, how much help they need from me. Sometimes I can read into whether they actually need the help or they just want some help because they're too lazy to do something on their own. You parents have been there, right? Uh, You've heard the difference between the help for homework and the cry for help when they're hanging off the monkey bars. Both of those cases, you can hear it audibly. You know, there's one that comes with a, a whine and some pouting. Dad, can you please help me? I don't know what to do. I just don't understand this. This is so stupid. Why does it even matter in life that we know these things? Then the other one comes with intensity and volume. Dad, help, I'm falling. Well, what's the difference between those two situations where they need help? What's the level of desperation? At one point, they may actually need help with their homework, but it's usually not a life or death situation in most cases. On the other hand, falling off the monkey bars may end up causing some form of injury. And so their cry for help comes from their desperation for help. Well, here in our passage this morning, we hear a cry for help from the lips of this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, who's sitting on the roadside of Jericho as Jesus and his disciples make their journey out of to Jerusalem. But as we'll come to see, this cry for help is different. Oh, for sure, Jesus and his disciples have heard numerous cries for help as they've journeyed through the villages and towns of Galilee and Judea. But this cry, oh, this cry is unique. In fact, it was unique enough that it stood out in the minds of Christ's disciples to be recorded here by Mark in his account of the life of Christ. You see, this blind man's request on the roadside of Jericho was no mere cry for help. This cry came from a point of desperation. Well, But of course it did, you might say. Dan, this this guy's blind. You'd be desperate too if, if you were blind. You're absolutely right. I'd be desperate too if I was blind. But here's the thing. I am. And so, are you. You see, Mark has intentionally placed this account here at the end of chapter 10 to conclude a section that began all the way back in the middle of chapter 8 with another healing of a blind beggar in the town of Bethsaida. 
If you would, turn there with me, just a couple pages back. Matthew 8. We have this account, starting in verse 22, of another healing of a blind man. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him on to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. What you might notice in these two accounts, both in 8 and then again at the end of chapter 10, is that with the exception of a different location being named, these are almost, they start off with the exact same wording. They came to Bethsaida, and they came to Jericho. Now this is unusual in the Gospel of Mark to name the location. It's even unusual that he would name, in the second case, the one who's being healed. One commentator named James Brooks notes, Mark shows here in this section how Jesus gave not only physical sight, but also spiritual sight to his disciples. And so it's in this section that the disciples are beginning to realize who Jesus was and what was involved in following him as disciples. In other words, what we have here at the end of chapter 10 is far more than an account of the last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. No, what we have here reveals to us just how desperate Jesus' disciples were. And yet, they don't truly see it. For if you recall what's happened throughout this section of Scripture, Jesus has foretold his ensuing suffering time and time again. And each time, the disciples not only balk at it, but then they take a hard left in the conversation with their petitions for prominence in his kingdom. As a matter of fact, if you've studied the Gospels at all and you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing that stands out is just how blind the disciples are to the true reality of who Jesus actually is and what he has come to do. Now, lest we think we're any better, the truth is we are just as blind to this truth of Christ. Outside of the sovereign grace of God shining into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, the the problem of this universal blindness in every human heart is not something that can be cured by our own doing. Nor is it cured by merely being around Jesus as the story of the disciples show us. You see, being close to Jesus in proximity doesn't mean you are close to him intimately. Let me say that again. Being close to Jesus in proximity doesn't mean you are close to him intimately. In other words, just merely sitting here on a Sunday morning or in any other church gathering, it doesn't mean that you are a true follower of Jesus. Oh, you could even have started attending a church gathering the day after you were born. And then you've started to give money and time, serve on the hospitality team, work in the nursery. And still, you cannot be close to Jesus 
intimately. Oh, the disciples, they've walked with him. They've had a front row seat at all of his miracles that astonished the crowds. They heard him teach daily on the reality of his kingdom. And yet to this point in Mark's gospel, we still find them seeing, but not perceiving. Hearing, but not fully understanding. Mark's objective in placing this story of blind Bartimaeus at this point in his gospel, immediately before Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the Passion Week, is to reveal to his readers, and I believe to us today, that if the cure to our blindness is not to be found in self-effort or religious activity, then it must only be found through the one to whom we are most blind to, through Jesus himself. So what I believe God reveals to us through this passage is this simple and yet profound truth that God opens the blind eyes of our hearts by sovereign grace alone. God opens the blind eyes of our hearts by his sovereign grace alone. Oh, and when he performs this miracle of regeneration, the gift of faith he gives takes action as we follow him on the way. That is, on his way to the cross. For you see, coming after him, on the way as Bartimaeus does at the end of this account, it means denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following him. As we've already heard from the lips of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark. Oh, but we may be getting ahead of ourselves already. So let's step into this scene here as Mark recounts this roadside miracle. Notice first with me, the beggars cry, For mercy. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The sad reality for Bartimaeus is that he's viewed by all of those around him as just one of the expendables in society. Though this would have been his reputation all of life, on this day, the volume seemingly only increases on his significance, as we hear. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. You can almost hear the crowds and their annoyance hurl insults at Bartimaeus for his interruption of this processional taking place as Jesus and his followers begin to leave Jericho. Shut up, you scum! You don't know what you're doing. He can't be bothered by the likes of you. Perhaps Bartimaeus was used to hearing things like this. Even so, no one likes to be overlooked and ignored. And Maybe he just finally has enough. Is that why he so rudely ignores their insults here and, and cries out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me? I don't think so. What happens here is, It's not a case of one who's been marginalized all of his life, gaining enough then self-worth to finally speak up for himself. No, what Bartimaeus cries here, Son of David, have mercy, is a cry of desperation. He knows he needs help. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, not just once, 
And probably not even just twice, but again and again. And with each verbal assault volleyed back at him by the crowd, his volume and intensity grows all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, this is a cry of desperation. He knows how helpless he is. From all that Bartimaeus has experienced in life, he's been given no reason to believe he'll receive an answer. I mean, that's how the world has treated him. Even so, this cry for help, unlike the ones he's cried before, is a cry for mercy. And it's directed toward not just any mere man. No, Bartimaeus knows who he is crying to. Jesus, son of David. Matthew uses this designation for Jesus some nine different times in his gospel account, but this is the only place Mark will use it specifically. He'll allude to it in chapter 11 at Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but that said, the use of the son of David at this point in Mark's gospel is significant, for it not only prepares us as readers for what is about to take place in the following chapters, but it also reveals that this man who is physically blind, has true spiritual sight. He knows the identity of Jesus. The one to whom he is crying out to for mercy is that long-awaited promised offspring of David who will, as we read in Samuel, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here's the thing. Bartimaeus' cry for des of desperation is also his cry, his declaration of faith. No other onlooker, writes Abraham Caravilla, has interpreted Jesus in messianic terms in this gospel. Only here is Jesus called the son of David by a human voice. Thus we can conclude this man has accepted the mission of Jesus. This man, Bartimaeus, has become a disciple it's been said that the kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. Bartimaeus is desperate. His desperation then is a doorway to faith. He, he knows he needs not only physical sight, but even more, he needs mercy. He is desperate for the compassion of the one who holds all things together. Well, how about you, friend? How desperate are you? Do you need help? Do you need mercy from the Savior? I love how J.C. Ryle asks a similar question. He writes, What is the reason that men are so half-hearted in seeking Christ? Why are they so soon deterred and checked and discouraged in drawing near to God? And the answer is short and simple. They do not feel sufficiently their own sin. They are not thoroughly convinced of the plague of their own hearts and the disease of their own souls. But once a man sees his own guilt as it really is, he will never rest until he has found pardon and peace in Christ. Oh, his desperation, Bartimaeus crying out all the more, is not just because he knows he needs physical sight. He knows he needs the one who holds all things. He knows he needs the mercy of Christ. Friend, do you 
need mercy? As I said earlier, I too am blind. And so are you. As Bartimaeus cries out, the crowds are rebuking his persistence, but no one expects what happens next. Look at verse 49. And Jesus stopped. His cry for mercy has been met by Jesus' call to come. Jesus stopped and said, call him. If there ever was a moment when all of time stopped, perhaps this was it. Jesus stopped. What's he going to do? What's going to happen next? What's he going to say? Have you ever wondered what is going on in the minds of the disciples and the crowds as they see Jesus seemingly all of a sudden change his course, stop like he does here? You can almost imagine the the tension that's there on that roadside to Jericho. What's about to happen? Jesus stopped. And then he speaks, call him. The crowd must have been mystified in this moment. Did did Jesus really just call blind Bartimaeus to come to him? I mean, Bartimaeus is a nobody. He's an annoyance. What would Jesus have to do with him? Mark records that the crowd's tone all of a sudden changes in this instant. No longer are rebukes being hurled at Bartimaeus. Now they are encouraging him, take heart, get up. Why? Because he is calling you. What has just happened in front of all of these naysayers to Bartimaeus is that the son of David has dignified the undignified. He has welcomed the unwelcome. No longer is Bartimaeus overlooked. Now he's seen. So he throws off his cloak and with a spring in his step like never before, he comes to Jesus. His cry of desperation has been heard by the one who came not to be served, but to serve. You see, friend, Christ calls us, you and I, blind in our hearts, And yet he says, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. Oh, I'll give you rest. So friend, if you're here this morning and you have never turned in faith, crying for mercy to the Son of David, Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to come to him today. To hear his call to come. He welcomes the unwelcome. It doesn't matter what you have done in life. Oh, Jesus, in his call, dignifies the undignified. Now, true greatness will be on display as Jesus not only calls Bartimaeus to come to him, but notice that he asks him a question as well. I think Jesus asks us a question too as he questions Bartimaeus. Will we come to him? What do you want me to do for you? Oh, he's giving further dignity to this expendable. No one asks blind beggars a a question. You just tell them what to do and where to go. But Jesus asked him this. What do you want me to do 
for you. Again, I have to believe all those standing around on that roadside were bewildered, bewildered by what Jesus is doing here. I mean, you don't just ask beggars questions. So there must be a point to why these words from Jesus, why this question. For surely Jesus knows what Bartimaeus needs. I mean, it's a rather silly question if you think about it. Of course, he wants to see. And yet, Jesus asked this question, giving Bartimaeus an opportunity to further declare his need and express his faith. But also notice, and I don't think it's any coincidence, that he just asked the same question to the sons of Zebedee back in verse 36. Yet there, if you remember from last week, what did James and John request? Not their need, but their want. Look at verse 37. They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Stark contrast to their request for glory, prominence, and position, Bartimaeus humbly requests a rescue. James and John, oh, they just want glory at his right hand. The difference couldn't be more apparent. These disciples who've walked with Jesus on the way, they've seen him working these miracles. They've heard how this journey to Jerusalem will end. But while physically able to see, they are still spiritually blind. Yet these blind eyes of Bartimaeus have spiritual sight. And so in humble trust, writes commentator James Edwards, Bartimaeus asked not for wealth or power or success, but only for sight. He doesn't ask to be superhuman, but simply human. For the well, Edwards continues, normalcy may seem the bare minimum, but for the ill and troubled, normalcy is God's greatest gift. And so Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, teacher, let me recover sight. This simple response is an expression of his faith. For you see, Bartimaeus has an assurance of things hoped for, and he's convinced of things he's not seen. Is this your posture towards Christ? Do you have this kind of humble trust and faith? Or do you perhaps want prestige, position like James and John? Again, this is no coincidence. This is what Christ is saying here in his word to us. He's asking us, do we have faith? Bartimaeus knows the son of David can make all things well. And so, he says, recover. He says, let me recover my sight. What happens? Jesus does. He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. (laughs) What sweet words these must have been to the ears of Bartimaeus, for in this very moment, his faith becomes sight. Mark records it in this way. Immediately he recovered his sight. You see, in this instance, there is no need for touch or even a, a second touch like we read back in that first miracle the blind seeing in chapter 8. 
You see, the reason for that is not because Jesus, through his ministry, has gained more healing power. Nor is it because this blind Bartimaeus has such amazing faith. He has stirred up so amazing uh, a faith that, that Christ would just with a word heal him. No, it's not more power from Jesus nor more faith. But the reason here is that these two miracles at the end of this section of Scripture are actually enacted parables. That is, historical events that serve a purpose like a parable would. One author notes, these stories help the reader understand why the disciples have been unable to comprehend Jesus' passion prediction. They understand partially who Jesus is. He's the long-awaited Messiah. But at this point, they fail to grasp the necessity of his death and resurrection. So as we'll see in the coming chapters, the disciples will receive a second touch. They will begin to see clearly, but not until the resurrection. Bartimaeus, however, is different. He sees clearly who Jesus is. The last phrase in verse 52 makes this abundantly clear because he does what? He follows him on the way. His desperate cry for mercy having been met with this call to come from the Savior, has now resulted in the recovery of sight. But notice lastly this morning, his faith then to follow. Bartimaeus doesn't just go on his own way, as we've seen others that have been healed by Jesus do. Rather, this recovery of sight leads him to follow Jesus on the way. As is the case with most elementary age boys, my son had and suffers from a case of fair weather fandom. If you've had an elementary son, you know what that is. This, his most recent sports crush, unfortunately, just so happens to be Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees. Of all the teams. Ugh, yuck. Now, I can somewhat understand his infatuation with Aaron Judge. He's a great baseball player, 61 homers so far this season, tying Roger Maris' record for home runs in a season. I mean, that's remarkable. And I appreciate the seeming humility Judge has shown so far in this quest, but still, he's, he's on the Yankees. I mean, come on. Now, the thing about what Fairweather fans is that one year it'll be the Yankees, and a couple years ago it was the Braves when they won the World Series. Uh, it can be a whole different player or team year after year. really just depends on how good a player or team is doing. Victory and fame are what matters for Fairweather fans, and my son Haddon is all about that right now. But Bartimaeus here is not a Fairweather fan of Jesus. Not at all. No, he's all in, no matter what's going to happen. Whether stardom or suffering. And Mark makes this point clear in this account by, as I mentioned before, first naming Bartimaeus which doesn't happen in any other accounts in the Gospels. Thus, this gives evidence to the fact that Bartimaeus was well known by the disciples as one of them in the days and years to follow this account. He had faith and he followed Jesus. It doesn't just end here at the end of chapter 10. Bartimaeus continues on the way, which again is an, another evidence of his faith to follow. This phrase, on the way, is significant as it reveals the direction in which Jesus is going. 
He is going toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. And if Bartimaeus was a fair-weather fan, he would have likely stayed there in Jericho. But he doesn't. He doesn't choose to go off on his own way. Rather, with his eyes now open, he decides to follow Jesus as every disciple is called to. And I believe he does so with the same determination and persistence in which he cried out to Christ in the earlier verses. For you see, friends, as Edwards once again notes, faith that does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. Faith that does not lead to following in the footsteps of Jesus is not saving faith. Whoever asked of Jesus must be willing to follow Jesus, even on the uphill road to the cross. You see, Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the way. How about you? Do you have faith to follow Jesus? Or is faith just a convenience for you? Are you a, guess we could call it a consumer Christian who's just trying to fit into the crowd and maybe get a little fix of Jesus here on Sundays? Feel a little bit better about yourself for the week? Or are you, like Bartimaeus, a committed Christian who's willing to take up the cross, deny yourself, and follow Christ? The sad truth is the church in America is far too filled with people who can physically see, and yet they are spiritually blind. Consumers who merely think they can get close to Jesus because they have put themselves in proximity to him. Fortunately, not just the case out there, maybe the case in here. And so friend, if you're here today and as you're thinking about this interaction between Jesus and Bartimaeus, where would you put yourself in this? Are you one of the disciples following Jesus? Maybe annoyed by the unwelcome, the undignified? Maybe a little frustrated when people come in and start yelling for Jesus. Or are you, Bartimaeus, blind too? Maybe for you, you are the consumer. I'll just come here, get a little fix of Jesus, and go on my way. Christ's call to follow him does not allow us to coddle people who want a fix of Jesus. Because he does not call us to just a fix, but to die. You see, just a couple verses earlier, we heard a rich young man who wanted just a little bit of Jesus. And when Jesus called him to come and follow him, remember what he did? Disheartened. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, there's a greater joy in following Jesus on the way, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Friend, are you, like Bartimaeus, desperate for mercy, desperate for the Savior to open 
your eyes. But then just as desperate to follow him as his disciple. Born in 1820 in Putnam County, New York, Fanny Crosby is one of the most prolific hymn writers of the 19th century. She became seriously ill within just two months of her birth. Unfortunately, while the family doctors were away, another man pretending to be a certified doctor came and said he could help, prescribing a hot mustard poultice to be applied to her eyes. While her illness eventually relented, the treatment left her completely blind. A few months later, Fanny, Fanny's father died and her mother was forced to work as a maid to support the family, leaving her to be mostly raised by her grandmother. Crosby's love of poetry and hymn writings began early and at just the age of eight, she echoed her lifelong refusal to feel sorry for herself as someone blind. She wrote, oh, what happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy the other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Having written some of the most beloved hymns like Blessed Assurance, All the way the Savior leads me. To God be the glory, safe in the arms of Jesus, and Jesus keep me near the cross. Crosby became well known for her contributions to the church. Many of those truths ring out throughout churches gathered each and every Sunday. I think it's a great pity that the Master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you, remarked one well-meaning preacher to Fanny later in life. Crosby responded at once as she had heard such comments before. Do you know, she said, if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever, or that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Huh. Bartimaeus. Blind, begging on the roadside, cried out for mercy, and his faith became sight. His faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Oh, it is God who opens the blind eyes of our hearts by his sovereign grace alone. And when he does, he gives us faith to follow him on the way. Friends, may our song that rings out in our hearts, be, I once was blind, but now I see. Oh, what amazing grace. How sweet the sound. So, Father, we are, every single one of us in this room this morning, wretches, helpless, beggars, and blind, without your rescue. Oh, we may have come in this morning to this gathering thinking that we've done pretty good in life. We've made a good name for ourselves. We've raised a, a good family. We come here on a Sunday, every Sunday, and we sit in the same pew. We sing the songs and we're close to you. And yet, 
truly aren't close. We have equated just being with the church as being a part of the church. Just being with other disciples, hearing even the word proclaimed with the fact that we have had faith, and yet our faith has stopped short. Our faith is not true. We have not followed you. Father, I pray for the one that's here this morning, for that is their story. That, God, you would do that miracle of regeneration even in this moment, opening their blind eyes, blind by prestige and prominence, blind by the American dream, blind by whatever it might be that is in their life, that you would take that off of their eyes, that they might see the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. And they too would have this faith to follow you, no matter the cost, to take up their cross, deny themselves, follow you on the way. God, if there's someone here this morning, and this is the the very first time they've gathered with the church, God, would they hear your call for them to come? That they would know that in Jesus, they can find a welcome. That in your son Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the truth of the gospel, that they would find mercy, forgiveness. God, you would do that miracle in their hearts as well. Regeneration, opening their blind eyes so that they too would follow you. God, this story that we read here in the end of Mark is for us today to reflect on. And so I pray that in this moment and as we go from this place, as we're sent, that we would take time to look at our own hearts, to see our desperate need and have faith in your Son, the son of David, the king of all kings. So we cry out, give us faith to follow you.